Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. According to The Verdict, in 2013, Tyson Timms was arrested in Indiana after attempting to sell undercover officers four grams of heroin, less than $200 worth. His punishment was a year of house arrest and payment of $1,200 in court fees. However, in civil court, the state of Indiana said it wanted Timms to forfeit his Land Rover, which he purchased with life insurance money after his father died. Before a trial judge, Timms argued that forfeiting the Land Rover would violate the Eighth Amendment ban on excessive fines. The judge agreed, and an appellate court upheld the decision. Then the Indiana Supreme Court ruled that the Constitution's excessive fine clause granted Hoosiers no protection from forfeiture. The U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to hear Timms' case. For the first time in 20 years, the court will have the opportunity to assess the constitutionality of civil forfeiture laws, which permit the government to confiscate cash, cars, and houses. The Human Rights Defense Center, a prisoner advocacy organization, has filed a class action lawsuit in federal court to challenge the practice of locking boys under the age of 18 in solitary confinement and depriving them of their right to an education at the Palm Beach County Jail in Florida. Most of the youth subjected to solitary confinement have some degree of intellectual or developmental disability, and nearly all are children of color. The lawsuit targets the county sheriff, school board, school superintendent, and others in the sheriff's department. When the state attorney's office charges teenagers as adults, the youth are placed in solitary for months at a time. They spend 23 or 24 hours a day alone in a 6 by 12 foot cell and receive no mental health care and minimal or no education. They have no music, TV, or human contact. They're handcuffed every time they leave their cells. The NAACP is suing the state of Connecticut in federal court for what it calls prison gerrymandering. The lawsuit alleges that the state counts inmates as living in the prison instead of residing where they did before entering prison. The areas the prisons are in, the suit contends, are mostly rural and white, whereas Connecticut's prison population is disproportionately black and Latino. Thus, the inmates' home districts are hurt politically when prisoners are counted as living elsewhere. Brad Berry, general counsel for the NAACP, said the organization believes that Connecticut's way of counting inmates violates the one-person, one-vote principle and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. He said, quote, We simply cannot accept that the state of Connecticut shifts inmates to rural areas far from their homes, then uses the fiction of their supposed residents in those areas to dilute the electoral power of their home communities, unquote. After spending over 36 years in Chicago's Cook County Jail, Jackie Wilson is free. Along with his brother, Wilson was convicted of murdering two police officers, as reported by the Chicago Tribune. Wilson was freed only a few hours after Cook County Circuit Judge William Hooks ordered his release. Hooks threw out Wilson's murder conviction after finding that ex-Chicago police commander John Burge, who was white and notorious for using physical torture to extract confessions from suspects, had used torture to force Wilson, who is African-American, to confess to the crime. Many African-American men have accused Burge and colleagues of torturing them in the 70s and 80s. Judge Hooks noted that the prosecutors had failed in their argument to keep Wilson in jail and that he believed they wished Hooks to view the case through the lens of a court sitting in the 1980s without considering the information revealed over the past three decades. 
According to the Detroit Free Press, a new lawsuit filed on behalf of over 90 former prisoners in the Genesee County Jail in Flint, Michigan, alleges that the lead contamination of Flint's water supply was particularly harmful to the inmates. The suit alleges that because they were jailed, the plaintiffs couldn't travel to an area that had uncontaminated water, couldn't install filters on their jail water taps, or drink bottled water, and were, quote, completely at the mercy, unquote, of the county sheriff and jail officials. The suit also alleges that the inmates were forced to continue drinking tap water even after officials knew about the contamination. Further, the suit alleges that the jail administrators withheld bottled water from inmates even when family members and other donors brought it. The suit also alleges that when bottled water was available, jail officials rationed it in inadequate quantities and charged prisoners excessive amounts of money to buy it from the commissary. In light of the ongoing struggles across the country against deportations, family separations, and ICE detention centers, we're sharing an interview we did last year about struggles in Australia against refugee prison camps. In 2002, imprisoned refugees inside Australia's remote Woomera immigration prison coordinated protests with 2,500 supporters who had pitched a no-borders camp outside the facility. This cooperation allowed the prisoners to stage a mass breakout. This is the first of two episodes dedicated to this story, from an interview with Aaron Azura, a participant in the Solidarity Camp. We were drawn to Aaron's story by the fierceness of the resistance within the detention center and the solidarity and coordination between supporters on the outside and those inside the walls of Woomera's detention center. It's a vital reminder that in an age of escalating American nationalism and xenophobia, fences can be torn down and connections can be forged across the walls. As we air this episode, there are occupations underway at ICE detention facilities or offices in Portland, Tacoma, Los Angeles, San Diego, New York, Wichita, Atlanta, Detroit, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Louisville, with more popping up every week. Each of these are spaces for both direct struggle against xenophobic imprisonment and for experimenting with new kinds of community that are not defined by legal status, borders, or race. Given the high stakes of this struggle, the lives of hundreds of thousands of immigrants and refugees, including thousands of children, not to mention the hardening precedent of family separations and other kinds of racial targeting, we must learn from previous experiences of occupation and organizing, such as Wumera. Australia is a settler colonial state. Uh, it was settled by the British in the 18th century. And, and I large indigenous population inhabited Australia, over a hundred languages and lots of different groups. And the indigenous people were, a large population of them were uh, basically annihilated across the 19th century. So race functions differently to the U.S. in that there, has, there, there isn't an acknowledged history of slavery, but there's a long history of white settler colonial attempts to understand indigenous people as as non-inhabitants through through a, a logic called terra nullius, or basically the idea that 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 the land was empty uh, when settlers uh, came. That you know, it's a it's a majority white settler population, and so British kind of British ideals of, I guess, the crown have been really important, just like the U.S. There's a history of importing non-white labor to meet a demand for cheap labor, particularly um, in the late 19th century and during 
Australia's gold rush, um, many Chinese laborers were were shipped to Australia, and as well as that, indentured laborers uh, from the Pacific Islands. That history of immigration of, of people of color has also brought with it a history of various forms of exclusion, points where Chinese people were, you know, in high demand, and then when they weren't, various forms of, you know, excluding Chinese and Pacific Islanders in the 19th century. And then through the, through the 20th century, again, really similar to the U.S., desiring white European immigration and white as in North, very Northern European immigration to begin with. And then gradually after the Second World War, the demand for labor and bodies to, to perform work was so great that they opened that up to Southern Europeans and then gradually to various other kinds of people. So in the first half of the 20th century, there were language tests where the law was that immigration officers uh, could set a language test in any language uh, that was deemed to be, that was kind of on a list. So you would get um, immigration officers getting people to write uh, write out a dictation test in Gaelic or Russian, for example, um, and when people failed that, that was grounds for deporting them. And that was understood or designed to be a kind of racial test um, to be able to exclude anyone who wasn't white. Um, but in the second half of the 20th century, you know, the kind of understanding of Australia as a humanitarian nation began to emerge, um, or as a more humanitarian nation, um, and especially in the late 70s, there was a wave of refugees from Vietnam and Cambodia and Southeast Asia that were taken in under a fairly left-leaning government, and that started a kind of self-image of Australia as as a haven for, as a kind of democratic haven for refugees. And that brings us to the last 30 years, where because Australia is an island, it's pretty difficult to kind of, you can catch a plane and claim asylum, but the majority of asylum seekers over the last 30 years have come to Australia by boat from Indonesia or um, from Papua New Guinea. And so because those refugees are understood in a kind of nationalist public imagination to have not gone through due process through the United Nations or through kind of applying for refugee status outside of the country, they've been understood by a variety of governments and and popularly as queue jumpers. And there's a huge history of nationalism and white nationalism on the left and the right in Australia, and successive governments have used that image of queue jumpers as a way, as a kind of dog whistle um, to whip up panic about non-white invasion from the north. And so that's the kind of background and a labor government, which is the, I guess, the U.S. equivalent of the Democrats in the mid-90s, um, brought in a policy of what was called mandatory detention, uh, which meant that anyone who came to Australia by boat and um, applied for asylum or asked 
for asylum on landing um, in Australia was detained um, automatically. And then you had to be, you were detained in a, basically in prison while your uh, claim for asylum was assessed. That is still the policy. And the policy, I can talk a little bit more about how the policy has changed. But at the moment, things have gotten so bad, actually, or the situation has gotten so dire that the Australian government has moved detention centers offshore and has actually said that they're not taking any boats. Um, any 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 people there, like, basically, it's really hard for people to land on the Australian mainland now. Boats are intercepted at sea and people are shipped off to islands in the Pacific. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's it's a really it's a really very deliberately racist um, policy that's that's been challenged for many many years. In major cities in Australia, there are a lot of immigration uh, kind of settlement or resettlement centers, and because there were huge waves of immigration during the 50s and 60s, um, there's kind of infrastructure that's built for people to be housed. And so some of the detention centers became more carceral forms of those immigration resettlement centers. So there's a couple, there's many in in major cities that basically they just built, you know, kind of fences and, you know, enclosures around these resettlement centers. Later, um, as the number of people who are coming to Australia increased, and particularly because there, you know, there's wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran um, throughout the 90s and into the 2000s, and particularly after the war on terror started, the number of people who were seeking asylum really increased, and the government decided that uh, locating detention centers in the desert um, would be a good idea because they were very isolated. It would be much more difficult for people to, to visit detainees, to do solidarity, or to figure out what was happening inside them. Um, so a number of detention centers were built in really remote areas that took, for example, six to eight hours to drive to from a major city. Um, and one of them was a Woomera Immigration Detention Center, and that was located in South Australia. Incidentally, or not coincidentally, it was located on government land that had been a military base. And around that area, there are ongoing military bases, but also very close to the site of nuclear testing in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, so that, I guess, gives you an idea of of what the logic was, which is to place people as far away from other people as possible and as far away from any documentation or witnessing or or oversight about how detainees were housed, what access they had to, for example, whether children were able to go to school, what kind of health care they were getting, etc. There are some contradictions between the fact that the Australian government was placing detainees in extremely remote environments. I should also mention that, you know, Australia is a very hot country and in the desert, um, the weather is really hot all year round. So 
the conditions were really terrible. And they continue to be terrible in new detention centers, but Wimmera is a, a real example of a complete crisis of, of basically, I think it's really quite equivalent to Guantanamo in, 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 the, in the kind of conditions that people were in. They were housed in, in really thin buildings that didn't have any heat or any temperature control. So people were not only hot outside, but were really hot inside. And there were constant uh, problems with people getting dehydrated, overheating, or like, you know, getting sunstroke. There were a lot of problems with people not being able to contact lawyers. So one of the the process is that you apply for asylum, and then while your case is being looked at, you can you're able to contact a lawyer. But because it was so remote, it was difficult for lawyers to get out there. Um, people were housed in really small dwellings uh, with too many people to a room. Um, there was lack of access to telephones. Um, so there are, there are huge problems, and as detention centers, you know, I mean, there was a long process also of people visiting somehow and documenting what was happening inside, um, but also detainees were trying desperately to, to tell people what was happening. So that is when, probably in the late 1990s, is when you start to see a lot of uh, protests happening that are initiated by detainees. At Woomera, there was an initial breakout by all of the detainees from the entire facility. And because it was so remote, their technologies of keeping people inside weren't that efficient because it was thought that there was nowhere for people to go. So at one point, um, I think in 2000, in the year 2000, um, all the detainees from Wilmera walked out and walked into town and refused to leave the center of town until they were, until there were kind of demands for better facilities were met. And at that point, the the companies and these are private companies who are to whom detention centers are outsourced started hiring kind of guards who are more mean they started really actually kind of ramping up what I would call torture of detainees detainees responded by ramping up their um, attempts at protest or their kind of forms of political protest um, which started and at that point, you started to see really intense forms of bodily protest happening. So a group of detainees sewed their lips together um, at Wimmera, and then there was another um, instance of that happening at a different detention center. People were going on hunger strike. And a lot of the kind of information about this was happening through basically through lawyers, but also through people who had started organizing to visit detention centers and and be in contact with detainees and be trying to kind of provide them with as much, as many resources as they could, um, which is kind of one node of the coalition of groups who eventually 
organized the Wamara protest in 2002. There were three main reasons that it, it kind of happened as it did and that it was as big as it was. Um, part of it was that people were starting to organize visits to detention centers and there was a bus tour of activists that went to all the detention centers around Australia and filmed um, and had things like weblogs and were, were constantly updating them. Um, there were a lot of detainees inside who were politically active. And at this point, also, the, the kind of composition of the detainees had changed where some of them had asylum claims that were outstanding, but many of them from Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan uh, had been denied asylum, but they were being detained indefinitely because Australia didn't have um, deportation treaties with those countries. So a lot of the people in Warmer at that point had been denied asylum, had appealed, had been denied their appeals, and then nobody knew what to do with them or they wouldn't... Um, they weren't about to release them. And so there was a sense of increasing desperation, I think, on the part of detainees, where some of them had been detained for five, six, seven years by that point and couldn't actually see a way out of detention at all. So that was one of the things. that was, Things were kind of getting to this boiling point inside the detention centers. The other thing was that in the late 90s, early 2000s in Australia at the time, there was a really huge counter-globalization movement um, that had successfully mobilized against the World Economic Forum in Melbourne in 2000. And there was a lot of coalitional political energy that kind of was, was emerging across a really huge spectrum. So there were people in the Green Party, there were people in the kind of, in, like the West segments of the Labour Party who were mobilizing, there were church groups, there were unions, there were environmentalists, and that energy didn't, uh, there were kind of huge um, anarchists and autonomous groups who had organized around the World Economic Forum, and those uh, people all still wanted to keep on organizing together, and uh, detention seemed like the kind of obvious, really urgent political movement to get involved in. I can't remember who came up with the idea that we should do a protest at Woomera, but a lot of different ideas had been floated. Some people were floating the idea of a flotilla of boats that would go to Indonesia and actually bring a huge number of asylum seekers to Australian shores. That seemed like it was pretty impractical and logistically difficult and would require a lot of resources. So someone came up with the idea of what people call the Festival of Freedom at Woomera and at Easter. Started off as a small group of people, but as it happened at the World Economic Forum, it was basically a kind of autonomous action where Everybody was invited. It was organized around a spokes council model. So the idea was that no group would be able to make a decision about what happened, but that a whole lot of different groups would come and do different kinds of actions or bring different kinds of people together. 
And the idea was definitely to be in touch with detainees. So to be close to detainees, to show them that we saw um, what was happening to them. Um, and I think that, you know, from the beginning stages, some people had the idea that this might result in a breakout, um, which is eventually what ended up happening. And the other important part of it was that there was a really big independent media movement happening in Australia um, at that time, which was, I guess, the way that I was, ended up getting involved. And so the indie media sites and every major city were happening. There was a lot of, there was a really huge sense of, of being able to share information and, and also being able to use kind of new technologies of, you know, for instance, being able to record sound and then upload it to the internet, which seems like a really basic thing now, but then was actually very new technology that made the idea of going somewhere remote and then being able to transmit what was happening um, seem really realistic and doable in a way that, um, because it was so isolated, lots of people had gone there, but they would have to wait, you know, a couple of days to to kind of report back or to make public what was happening. Um, and so, yeah, that's how the 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 Wimmer 2002 protest kind of was initiated. And at first there were working groups in every major city, and I was part of a working group in Melbourne um, that was coordinating all the different parts of it. But then people started organizing online, and it ended up, I think, 2,500 people ended up coming. Um, there were buses. There were people who were on road trips who drove up. Um, there were groups from of from all different kind of, like, running the gamut of the political spectrum. There were socialist groups. There were church groups. There were lots of people from the Green Party, um, which was probably the most left parliamentary party in Australia at the time. There were groups who had been doing immigration detention solidarity work for years at that point. Um, there were anarchists, there was a black bloc, um, there were all sorts um, of people, there were lots of environmentalists, and there were also people who had been doing um, indigenous solidarity work in South Australia and in that particular area who came. Um, so it was a huge variety of people. I arrived with a group of people to start the camp, um, and we envisaged camping there for four or five days. And the first night was about taking space and keeping it while there was a sort of small group of people there. Um, so basically, it felt like it felt very uh, kind of scary because we were in a situation where the, the police definitely outnumbered us. And we had this weird kind of wagon circle where all the vehicles were parked in a circle to surround the campers. And the police raided us at 3 a.m. and tried to take some tents or whatever, but the, the vehicle structure kind of seemed to work. And then the next day, more people showed up 
and the police started negotiating with us about maybe we'd like to camp in um, a football field in town, which was a couple of miles away. Um, obviously, people said no and stayed where they were. And then by the by, I think by the second day, there were so many people that the police were no longer able to move us. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Are you or someone you care about affected by the prison system? You can call us to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512 or you can use this number to record a message to a loved one behind bars. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kitelineradio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.